Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and on this edition of the podcast, Editor Mandy Rhodes speaks to Lisa Mackenzie. A former policy officer for the Royal College of Nursing in Scotland, Mackenzie says she felt forced out of her job after contributing to an academic paper on sex and gender. Mackenzie says she was subjected to a Kafka-esque investigation after telling her employers she'd taken part in research on gender self-identification, although no further action was taken by the RCN. But before that, I'm joined by journalist Jack Thompson to talk about what's been happening over the past week. Jack, the, the pandemic has uh, claimed arguably its first major political casualty in, in the shape of Matt Hancock at the weekend. Were you, were you surprised that he resigned or did he have to go? It's an interesting one. I think yes and no, in a sense, and um, not to kind of sit on the fence. But for me, it certainly felt like the pressure was really building on Hancock during Dominic Cummings' appearance at the joint inquiry of the Health and Social Care Committee and Science and Technology Committee um, a few weeks back. And obviously, we're aware of some of the things that were said then. Um, you know, the PM's former aide claimed Hancock should have been fired for 15 to 20 things. Um, he made allegations about him lying. And that, for me, felt like perhaps the moment that he, he could or he would go, um, but he didn't. And, you know, after that, we had the the Boris Johnson text um, about the handling of the crisis and, you know, the stuff with the, you know, apparent totally hopeless and, and still nothing really happened. And yeah. so you're wondering if anything would happen. Um, and then, of course, we see the footage um, that emerged kind of in the past week or so. And initially... It was reported that Johnson had sort of accepted his apology and considered the matter closed. And so it was one of those scenarios which you sometimes get with um, politicians, uh, cabinet um, ministers, you know, where you wonder, you know, is anything going to stick? You know, there's been kind of maybe a series of, of incidents or things reported and you wonder, you know, is this going to be the one? Um, so this one, you know, I guess aside from the, the moral side of it, given it was a, a breach of social distancing guidelines, it just seemed too difficult for Hancock to to kind of continue um, and uh, despite, you know, what had happened. So it's kind of, and not to mention, obviously, the fact that I think he'd said that Professor Neil Ferguson, who was the scientific advisor for the government, yeah. um, when that, when it kind of, his situation happened, he said that he should resign for his breach. So it, it looked like his position wasn't tenable, but, it was kind of one of those ones where you're not sure if he was just going to continue regardless. I don't know. What were your thoughts? Chris? Well, I mean, I just think it's incredibly rare now uh, nowadays for politicians to actually resign for anything. So um, in that respect, yeah, he, he deserves a bit of credit for doing so. But I mean, I agree with you that it was, it was very much a kind of uh, the drip drip effect of, of things going back for several weeks, starting with Dominic Cummings, um, uh, the text from the Prime Minister calling him fucking useless uh, or fucking hopeless, I can't remember the exact the f- phrase that was used, 
um, and uh, obviously culminating in, in the CCTV, which which is incredible. I mean, uh, I think there is an investigation uh, ongoing as to how that mm. CCTV ended up in the hands of the sun. So that that'd be quite interesting if we were get to the bottom of that one. But um, I think personally, there's a good many reasons why Matt Hancock could have resigned uh, before his uh, love life ended up on the front page of the sun. But um, I think ultimately he's, uh, he's taken the right decision. Yeah. And it's interesting I actually read and I'm not sure which paper it was today, but it was kind of sources um, perhaps from the Department of Health saying that um, the investigation into the leak um, relating to the, the footage should be one of the kind of shortest investigations um, of all time because what the report was saying was that um, you know when you access that footage, you leave a digital trace. Right. So it seems, I don't know, perhaps we could see some repercussions emerge from that. Who knows? So we should be able to get to the bottom fairly quickly if, if we leaked it. Well, why. it seemed it seems that way, um, and the yeah. you know the reports in the newspapers. But who knows? Um, yeah. There seems to be a bit of kind of debate about the footage as well. You know whether um, you know where you know how how that was allowed to happen as well. So yeah. it's, I, I get the impression that this story is not quite over. Yeah, and obviously this is all happening against the backdrop of of COVID. Um, there's been a bit of an uptick in the number of cases in Scotland recently. What what's what's the situation like at the moment? Yeah, so 29th of June, I think we had another 3,118 3, new cases of COVID reported in Scotland. And mm. also during the week ending 29th of June, um, in total, it was just under 20,000. I think it was about 19,500 or so people had tested positive for the first time. So that's quite a lot. We talk about maybe if you do the seven-day average, that's going to be somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 cases a day maybe. Um, and so obviously our, our testing capacity is quite advanced at this point of the pandemic compared to where it was at the start of pandemic, the pandemic. So that's going to have played its part. But certainly, I think anecdotally, I mean, we've had you know conversations with each other at Hollywood Magazine where it certainly feels like the virus is, is closing in in the sense that more and more people that um, maybe we know individually, you know, personally are returning positive tests you know you hear about a you know a family member or a friend of a friend and it just feels like it's mm -hmm. building yeah. so there's no doubt that the the delta variant is is causing a, a you know a rise in infections and um, that we've seen but you know it seems that there's evidence that the vaccination program is is either breaking or significantly blunting the link between new cases and the risk of hospitalization. So people are perhaps getting COVID and, you know, no doubt feeling pretty rubbish, but not mm. necessarily getting or not necessarily always getting seriously ill. Yeah. Um, so clearly, though, it's been monitored very carefully. And Nicola Sturgeon said in her latest update, uh, people in Scotland should stay vigilant, which has obviously been quite a consistent message. Yeah, I mean, that's right. She, she, gave a, she gave an update yesterday and, um, you know, her, her language seemed to uh, largely mirror that of the UK government, which is still quite positive about re reopening. And um, the new health secretary, Sajid Javid, has been very bullish and, and basically saying that um there's there's you know we're at the point of no return we can't go back into any uh any kind of lockdown at any point in the future which kind of makes them a, a bit of a hostage to fortune given what we know about uh about COVID-19 but um it does seem like they're a bit optimistic a bit more optimistic certainly that we will get back to some sort of normality despite the number of uh, the high number of cases 
Yeah, certainly. And I think because, you know, the narrative has definitely changed a lot recently, perhaps in the last month or so, where it's no longer about, um, you know, limiting the number of cases. It's perhaps just about, you know, ensuring that whilst there will be cases, numbers of cases, people won't get, you know, ill. Um, I thought maybe Javid would have been, uh, what, he'd be slightly more cautious with his words, Mm. um, you know, kind of day one on the job. But, um, they're obviously optimistic, and I guess that optimism ties into the success of the vaccination program. Um, and also, we had you know the first minister uh, saying in her recent update that it, it looks like there might be a slight slowing of transmission more recently um, mm-hmm. in Scotland. So that's perhaps something to to keep an eye on. Although I do get the impression, I mean, as we've kind of mentioned with coronavirus being so unpredictable at times i do get the impression that it's not a done deal as such you know that the lifting of restrictions in scotland will go ahead on i think it's 19th of july and 9th of august respectively so i think there is probably still that room to hit the brakes slightly if they feel that they they want to do that so we don't know for sure um you know but i guess you know all the government could do is kind of encourage people to continue following the rules to stay alert to keep their eye on the ball um and perhaps that's maybe something that feels like it might have slipped recently. I don't know if you if maybe think the same, that, but with people getting vaccinated, there's maybe that sort of tendency for, you know, anyone to kind of think, well, I've been vaccinated, you know, I've had single dose, double dose. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think, uh, you know, the same happened last year in the summer. People kind of let their guard down a little bit because there's more being outdoors, but also the fact that now a lot of people have been, have had two doses of the vaccine they feel a lot safer uh, and it was interesting to hear um, or to read a piece from Andrew Marr who himself had been double vaccinated but then subsequently ended up getting COVID uh, but he he himself said that he had kind of let his guard down because he felt um, he felt safer knowing that he'd had two shots of the vaccine so I'm sure that is all playing into it and also the fact that we're now seeing uh relatively high case numbers in places like East Lothian, which previously haven't had big numbers of cases where there's probably a lot of people who have no immunity to to the virus. So um, it's quite a kind of complicated mix, but uh, hopefully there's there's some signs of some signs of optimism. Yeah, absolutely. You'd hope so because I mean I think again it's kind of coming back to that point and maybe just we feel it does feel like we're at a different stage now where, you know, there perhaps is that sort of light at the end of the tunnel um, where we're maybe getting, you know, to a place where, you know, we're seeing less um, hospitalizations and, you know, less numbers of deaths, which is obviously, you know, a step in the right direction. And Jack, you're, um, you're considerably younger than me, uh, unfortunately. And uh, (laughs) have you, have you had your, your first shot of the vaccine yet? Yeah, first shot um, I had a few weeks ago, maybe about three weeks ago. I think it was right. three weeks ago on Sunday. So I'm not sure when that sort of means that um, I'll be in maybe within the next six to eight weeks, I guess. Because there seems probably... to be a big a big drive on at the moment to get to get as many young people vaccinated as possible, and that that's the way to kind of head off the the progress of the of the virus. Yeah, yeah, um, you know which. I think is is important, and I think you're seeing the kind of the drop in stuff that's happening down south. Um, which seems to be um, doing you know doing quite well in terms of people dropping in to get their to get their jab. Um, so it's yeah, I mean it's it's 
it's that race and it? it's that race against uh, between the vaccine and the and the virus which is um is going to be crucial i think in in the end yeah Okay, so it uh, sounds like some uh, signs for cautious optimism, at least. Uh, thanks very much, Jack. And uh, now Mandy Rhodes speaks to Lisa McKenzie. Lisa, who would have thought that in 2021, you and I would be discussing whether it was legally acceptable to say that sex is real, that sex and gender are different things, and that biology matters? Um, well, indeed. I'm not sure I could have predicted it. Um, I'm not even sure I would have predicted it five years ago for my for myself. I know the debate was raging somewhere uh, in the hinterland of the internet, but it certainly wasn't on my radar. So no, it, it wouldn't. It would have surprised me to be told at that point that this is where we'd be. <laughs> I mean, we'll go into what has happened to you because um, I think the publication of your story has brought this to a head for lots of people, and it's been quite bruising. But I mean, at its very core, this is about the argument of whether science matters, doesn't it? Or or sex and gender matter and whether they're different matters. Yeah. And, and I think, um, yes, I mean, it, we, we talked, we've talked about, you know, whether experts are defunct, um, uh, you know, the collapse of organised religion and what's left what steps into the void? I think that all comes into play. Uh, there's a lot of evangelism, despite the fact that organised religion is collapsing, and it's one can't help wondering whether that's part of it. Um, but yes, I mean, at the heart of this is a it's what I saw even three and a half years ago when I first started looking at it is a conflict of rights that if you allow a subset of people who are male into the legal and political category of women, then inevitably that will have consequences for people who were born female. And um, most people actually, when I've begun the discussion with them face to face, actually do understand that quite quickly. Um, But I don't think that the debate is possible or fruitful uh, in online fora um, on social media. I've actually got to a place where I've thought that social media is kind of antithetical to democracy. I think (laughs) 280 characters is not enough to tease out the complexity. I mean, is that because, so I suppose on one level, I think there's a very simple sentence, which is that sex is real, biology is real, sex is binary, and gender is not. That's quite simple. And then we get into a whole load of nuance. Yeah. And I mean, again, even three and a half years ago, I don't think I would have been quite as troubled by flipping quite happily between the terms sex and gender. And actually, I think most people still see them as synonyms. So, I mean, I I know that a lot of feminists are very keen to uh, delineate their views um, and differentiate between the two terms. I'm not sure most public members of the public really appreciate or or, or are ready to to go there. Uh, You know, we know that people use gender partly because of squeamishness about saying the word sex and uh, worrying that it will be mistaken for the act rather than the the biology, um, the reproductive class. Um, but we are finding ourselves having to differentiate because pieces of legislation have been drafted and they talk past each other. So you have the Equality Act, which talks quite clearly about sex, and that's only 11 years old, 10 years old. And you have the Gender Recognition Act, which was passed 16 years ago, which talks about gender. And so they don't really talk to each other. Um, and it's a great travesty, really, that our elected representatives didn't 
all, well, some did grasp this as it went through uh, legislative process, but many of them didn't. Um, but some did foresee all the things that have happened today. They had real foresight. It's almost as if you need a, a bit of a bibliography and we need to do some definitions. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I when I interviewed Joanne Lamont, um, the former MSP, about a lot of this, she very clearly said that she can remember as a feminist, you know, kind of 15, 20 years ago, actually embracing being able to use the word gender when she might have meant sex because of exactly that squeamishness that you, you mentioned. So we're kind of, I guess, feminists have been also part of the problem that we've embraced words without thinking about yeah. the unintended consequence. Yeah. Well, I was very struck watching on the basis of sex about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there's a line in there where she hands an enormous brief to her secretary to read through before she takes her first case, her first sex discrimination case. And I assume that this has some basis in fact. And the secretary comes back and says, you know, it's excellent. But, ooh, the word uh, the word sex is a bit distracting. She says distracting. I remember watching it on a plane <laughs> and laughing. Um and so you can see how we veered off into uh, adopting this much easier word to use. But I mean, my uh, undergraduate degree was in Mandarin Chinese, and there isn't, there aren't two words. There's one word, Xing. That's it. <laughs> so actually, a lot of the UN documents, when I tried to look at them translated, uh, where where it said sex and gender in the English version, in the Chinese version, the character was the same. So already yeah. you you've hit upon a linguistic problem, which is not resolvable globally <laughs> across languages. Why does it matter, do you think? Why does it matter that sex and gender have been used interchangeably and being conflated in policy making? Well, because it has allowed us to to walk away from the, the concept of human sexual dimorphism, I think. Um, I mean, if, if the BBC can talk about there being 100 genders, then we're absolutely not talking about biological sex anymore. Uh, biological sex is is binary and the existence of people with variations of sex development does not negate that theory um, and we know that women are disadvantaged and discriminated against on the basis of sex and so their reproductive category is still meaningful politically and if we can't recognize that in our lawmaking then we can't cater for the disadvantage and discrimination that women face because it it boils down to our biology. And that's not to be essentialist about it. We would all like to escape our biology. And, and you and I have benefited from many medical advances, which have allowed us to continue in the workplace, to prevent pregnancy, um, to allow us to function as economic citizens, I suppose, um, and gain some parity with men, but not completely. I mean, essentially the gender pay gap is a mother is a motherhood penalty. And, uh, women are discriminated against on the basis of their reproductive potential. They might never go on to have children. And of course, more and more women are choosing not to have children. But nonetheless, when you sit in front of a, an interviewer for a job and you're in your mid-20s, you know that they will be thinking, how likely is this woman to disappear in a few years to have a baby? Um, and we know that employers have discriminated against women on that basis. And women have not got uh, jobs because it has been assumed that they will disappear from the, the workplace and, and that will be costly for employers. I mean, the other thing in that, Lisa, is that I, I look back to being in my 20s and probably early 30s and, and really championing the idea that women could have it all, that we could be the same, that there shouldn't be a physical disadvantage. And 
again, I guess I sometimes feel that we have helped contribute to the arguments that have got us to where we are now. We yeah, well, didn't I mean, want to recognise the differences. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, motherhood is a massive, often a very radicalising experience for a lot of women. Um, I'm not saying that you can't arrive at that point without having experienced motherhood, biological motherhood. But it's not a coincidence that a lot of the concern about the policy capture has come via discussions that have taken place on Mumsnet. Because as soon as you have a baby, a, a, a biological child, <laughs> things start to crystallize about your disadvantage and the hurdles that you feel. I mean, I remember being uh, heavily pregnant and realizing I just couldn't run for the bus anymore and feeling that that was quite disabling. I mean, I had been so used to my twice to jump on the back of Route Masters in London, do some really quite scary moves and realizing that, gosh, if I, you know, I can't waddle fast enough to that bus, I'm going to miss that bus and we have to wait another 20 minutes. Um, so, it, you know, that experience is often the point at which women think, oh, actually, wow, it's, uh, I don't have parity with men because those men are sailing through their careers with unbroken employment records, stacking up their pension contributions and emerging at the end of the process, age 60, with a lovely pension pot. And uh, many women, I mean, this is where the, the, the numbers are really very stark if you look at the numbers generated by places like the Women's Budget Group. I mean, it's off the scale, the difference between the accumulated pensions of women and men. Uh, and women's economic place in society as a result of that. So we're recognising that there are differences between men and women. There's a biological difference. You mentioned a number of times at the beginning there that things changed three and a half years ago. So what, what happened three and a half years ago to make you start thinking slightly differently or wanting to move things on differently? Well, I had been working for five and a half years for the Howard League for Penal Reform, a prison reform charity. And towards the end of my time there, I, I had a number of press calls sort of intermittently about uh, stories being reported to me of trans women or, or, or prisoners who were male, who were now identifying as women being moved into the female estate. And what did I think of it? Um, and I had a sort of policy in that role. Was that I, I just worked part time and there were no other paid staff that I my rule was that I wouldn't comment on things if I didn't know the whole story, which actually, in retrospect, I think is quite a good strategy. That is a good strategy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I didn't. I didn't tend to say anything, which felt a little bit lame at the time. Uh, but it troubled me. And I, and I thought, well, this is, um, this is happening, really? How, how often is it happening? So um, I decided to look up the trans prisoner policy from the Scottish Prison Service. And I was really shocked when I read it because it basically advocated for any male prisoner who said he was a woman to be considered for a move to the female estate. It wasn't a complete uh, given in that there was some hint at a kind of risk assessment, but it was a kind of, the working premise was that you would expect to move that person to the female estate. And also that uh, female prison officers would be expected to do intimate body searches on trans women uh, who I had done some research and I was well aware that they were very likely to be uh, not to have undergone any sort of surgical or hormonal treatment. And I was really very shocked. So I went to look for the equality impact assessment on the prison service website. And the, the list there was quite exhaustive. I mean, they had every sorts of you know, policies on pensions, all sorts of internal policies, which had been subjected to this kind of impact assessment. But there wasn't one for this policy, which I thought was odd. So I um, submitted a freedom of information request in the summer of 2018 for sight of it. And when it came back, it was really obvious that they hadn't considered the impact on women. So they had 
acknowledged that under the Equality Act 2010, they had a duty to consider the impact on the different protected groups, but they hadn't considered the impact on women, so women prisoners or their own female staff. Um, And the only people they'd consulted were LGBT campaign, campaign groups. And in fact, later, once once the document was out in the public domain, a feminist campaigner looked at the metadata for the policy and saw that the author was the manager of a LGBT campaign group. So, so sorry, Lisa, I was just going to say, so does that mean when they were looking at the risk assessment, the risk assessment was all about what risk this particular prisoner might face rather than the risk they might pose to other people. Yeah, exactly. So it was seen completely through the lens of one protected characteristic, that is the protected characteristic of gender reassignment under the Equality Act. So in fact, I think they hadn't, I'm not even sure they had ticked the box that said sex. So there was a sort of tick box um, form. Um, But no, they hadn't consulted any women's groups or any human rights groups who might be thought to have some sort of specialist view on this. So, yeah. Why why should that concern you? I mean, shouldn't you just be concerned for here's a prisoner that may feel that they're at risk because they're a trans woman sitting in a male prison and they're at clear risk from other male prisoners? Um, well, I mean, this was this is the point that I eventually came to write about with my two colleagues was that you're talking about two potentially vulnerable groups, um, but one group had not been considered, and it. And, and that was women, but also quite possibly, for example, uh, those with a religious faith who might object to being in a space with someone of the opposite sex, that hadn't been considered either. Um, and I think what struck me, in, and, and maybe struck me particularly having been a civil, I was a civil servant, was that policymakers and lawmakers, if they're doing their job properly, then they're weighing up the needs and interests of different interest groups and trying to resolve those conflicts. Um, and when I did my civil service board in 1999 or whenever it was, one of the exercises we had was a group exercise where each of the candidates was given a particular role. And I think it was a planning issue. Quite, that's quite classic. And we all had to consider it from the perspectives of the different groups. And the idea being was to give us a sense that, you know, when you're given these conundrums in your role as a civil servant, your role will be to try and balance the rights and interests of different groups. And it, it won't always be a perfect resolution for everyone, but you will nonetheless have to attend to those uh, different needs and, and desires. And it was just so obvious to me that they hadn't, this hadn't happened in the case of the policy um, and that they had thought about one vulnerable group potentially, but not another. So, so on that base, on what you're saying, so this, say we're looking at this trans woman who says, they want to be transferred to the female estate because they're a trans woman. I mean, I'm assuming that people would say, well, some people would say, well, a trans woman is a woman, Lisa. So that was obvious. They should be in the women's estate. Yeah. Well, and then that's exactly, that's the nub of the, the conflict, isn't it? In that some people are prepared to accept that statement, uh, which is, of course has become something of a mantra, which I find spectacularly unhelpful in, in, in policymaking and lawmaking. Um, but others would say, well, no, they're not. They're male. They remain male, even in spite of any uh, medical interventions. And, if, and, of course, it's not just that they might pose a sexual threat to those women, but most women, I mean, this is the thing I was so steeped in at the Howard League because in 2012, Elish Angelini published a report into women offenders in Scotland. Uh, so I was well 
I was, I was, I was familiar with the, the profile of most women in prison. Most of them have been victims of male violence. Many of them suffer from PTSD. Uh, and the idea that you would put someone who was male-bodied in their midst, who might be the nicest person and pose no threat to them whatsoever, but there had been a great deal of talk in the years, uh, the second part of my stint at the Howard League, about creating trauma-informed services for women in prison, partly as a result of Vila Shangelini's report. And I just could not see how this could be compatible. And yet it was fascinating because the Angelini report came out in 2012 and the trans prisoner policy came out in 2014. So here we are, two policies which had a genesis around the same era, but completely uh, different approaches and a failure to consider the needs of a group of very traumatised women in prison. Do you know of any problems that have occurred because of that policy? Well, I do now, actually, because there was a whistleblower, and, and a lot of people will be familiar with Rona Hotchkiss, who was uh, governor of Corton Vale, the women's prison in Scotland, um, although she did work, she has worked in other parts of the estate. And she spoke very powerfully a couple of years ago about uh, her interactions with female prisoners who were placed in wings with trans women prisoners. Um, and again, not necessarily stories of sexual threat or sexual assault, but the trauma caused to those women by being in a confined space from which they could not escape with someone who they perceived to be male, who was male. Um, I mean, I think from memory, she talked about a woman who was making a great deal of progress in prison and and moving towards release, had dealt with a a serious drug problem and obviously all sorts of backstories with her own life experiences. And then a trans woman was placed in the unit where she was and she just fell backwards. The whole rehabilitation process just went into reverse. Um, uh, and and that, that was such a compelling story. It was very hard to argue with someone who had witnessed that firsthand as Rona did. Um, and I found that really powerful. I mean, I guess the uh, I, I've actually heard those stories from Rona as well. And I guess I'm conscious that I interviewed um, someone in the last podcast, um, a drag queen who is also involved for Out for Indy. And when I talked about the very real risks and the evidence that does exist, about trans women in the women's estate and assaults that have happened as well, other than the kind of, I suppose, lower level risks that you're talking about. They said to me that that had to be balanced against trans women who had continued to be kept in the male estate who'd committed suicide. Um, Now, I don't have any evidence of that, and they didn't provide me of any evidence of that. There's a lot of myths around a lot of these stories that we're being told? How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? Well, we, I mean, we absolutely have to make policy on the basis of evidence. Um, and this is another area of concern, really, is that a lot of public bodies and the prison services is a case in point are not collecting um, robust data on, for example, assaults in prison committed by uh, people with trans identities. Um, because we want to be able to say what has happened, what the risks are, but also to consult both groups of people. I mean, it, I don't know what the solution is in, in this particular scenario, but I'd want everyone's vulnerabilities to be taken into account. And we know that the, the prison estate is not a pleasant place to be, even if you're a man, and you can well imagine why you might want to extract yourself from that setting. Um, but the solution is not to place someone in a setting where they will traumatise a large cohort of other prisoners who are also very vulnerable. So we have to have evidence-based policymaking and, and, and not policymaking based on conjecture and um, 
supposition, uh, but I just don't see that. And again, having been a civil servant, it, it just really troubles me that policies seem to be being made not with an evidence base. And also there's a, there's a burden of proof thing here. I, I think if you're going to, we have sex segregation in lots of different spaces and services for a reason, because a small enough but significant enough minority of men will be always be a threat to women. And, and I'd want that harm to be conceived more widely, sort of psychological harm that I talked about. Um, that should be taken into account too. But we, uh, we have to proceed on the basis of having done evaluations and take all of that into account. And that just isn't happening right now. I mean, one of the things that will be will always come up when we talk about single sex spaces, particularly when we're looking at things like women's refuges, women's aid refuges, rape crisis um, services, is that a lot of the trans lobby, if you like, will talk about, um, oh, well, trans women have always occupied these spaces and there's been no issue raised. Is that true? Well, again, this is where I think absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, And for example, I I hear a lot of activists say, well, you know, they've had self-ID in Ireland for a long time. It's been fine. Well, there's no evidence of a a proper evaluation having been carried out there. And we know, for example, that the chair of the Criminal Law Committee in the Law Society of Ireland a couple of years ago said, once it became clear that trans women were being moved into the female estate, uh, prison estate in Ireland, that they had not anticipated that one potential impact of changing the law and putting legal sex change on a self-declaration basis would enable that to happen. Um, But also the thing that concerns me that hasn't happened is the potential for women to self-exclude from services like that when they are aware they are no longer, no, they are no longer single sex in the way that women understand to be single sex, because those women will never show up in statistics so, for example, in, in a lot of swimming pools in Edinburgh and in many other places, we often have, you know, a, a session which is women only. Now, if that women only session becomes essentially mixed sex because, uh, for example, it's open to self-identified women, well, will we start to see women just no longer using those sessions? And will we know if that's happening? Will we know if it's happening? And, and part of the reason why my colleagues and I have become perhaps inadvertent data campaigners is because if we're going to try and create an evidence base for this, we need to have clear, robust data. You know, who are we talking about here? You know, do we have 30 women a week use that session? And when we say women, what do we mean? (laughs) And if after introducing this new policy, that has dropped to 10, what can we say? But at the moment, it's actually not possible to do that because we have um, corrupted a lot of the data fields so we can no longer say with certainty that when we talk about females using a leisure centre, are we really talking about women, people who are born female? Or are we talking about this bigger category, which is a mixture of biological females and people who self-identify as women? Do you recognise, Lisa, that if a trans woman was listening to this, they could feel very upset that they weren't being regarded as being a woman. Well, I I mean, I know that's the reaction of of some people who campaign on this issue, but I would hope that they would understand that. uh, And I think one of the things that really concerns me is the kind of characterisation of the debate when we talk about the threat. And I think Joanne Lamont said this when she spoke to you, being male is a threat. 
that it's it's there's no evidence to suggest that people with a trans identity are uh, any more likely to commit crimes or offences. But being male is being in the male category is, and so, for example, I mean, I if I knew twenty men who I could be absolutely sure would go into a single sex space and not harm women in any way, shape, or form, I would not be advocating to get rid of sex segregation sex segregated services because we are making public policy and the clue is in the name it's public policy and you're dealing with aggregates and there will be some settings where it's it's fine and we, we might well consider that uh, self-identified women as opposed to biological females might be sharing the same space and we might be having third spaces I mean I think this is a discussion that certainly when I started looking at this I thought well why aren't we having that discussion? Um, there might be people who are, there might be women who are perfectly happy to share some spaces with people who are born male who now identify as women. But we have to be open to the fact that there are women who absolutely want those spaces. And it's only possible then f- for them to move through the world in the knowledge that those spaces exist. And I, I mean, I've, I've met women who fall into that category. Um, I mean, I met a, a senior uh, politician a couple of years ago who told me that when he was had first begun working as a local councillor he'd visited a domestic violence refuge on his patch and as he walked through the door of the refuge a little boy wet himself because he heard his voice and he said I just walked through the door and began talking to the manager so he wasn't posing a threat but the fact that that refuge was just for women and their children and this child had a traumatic response to a male voice meant that preserving spaces like that is really important and that's not to say you can't also have a mixed sex refuge or or whatever but uh, we we mustn't lose that facility. How bruising has all this been Lisa because when you talk and you and I've talked a lot about all these things and like you I have been accused of being a transphobe for saying some of these things I mean are you a transphobe? No I don't think I am. (laughs) Um, Is it a surprise to you that even that could be levelled at you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I care very much about people who are suffering from gender dysphoria, and it, it's a mistake to think that there aren't people like that in my life. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, it is going to be called bigoted. Um, I think very carefully what I do and what I say. I always have done. I've worked for organisations that campaign for equality. Um, so it is it is always startling to be referred to in that terms. But at the end of the day, I know myself that I am, I am not bigoted. Um, I hope through the work that I do, that's evident. Everything that I have done in the last three years has been done on an open access basis. Everything I've written is in the public domain. Um, and a bit like... Um, well, many women who have written or spoken about this, I would, my first retort would be, well, please read what I've written and tell me where in there you can find something which you would regard as transphobic. Um, and I, well, if someone wants to have a go, they're very welcome. But genuinely, I would not put things out there if I thought that that was what I was doing. I mean, I, I have asked those same questions when I've had those accusations levelled at me. And I've yet to see the evidence of anything I have written um, or said that would be transphobic. However, 
if it comes down to people believing you're a transphobe because you say that you believe sex is real and that you believe you can't actually biologically change your sex, that makes things very difficult. Yeah, and I, and I think that became really evident at the, the end of the parliamentary passage of the hate crime public order bill. Um, in the very final debate, I mean, there were quite a few amendments tabled on freedom of expression to offer some protection to women who might want to talk about their rights and not be caught by the criminal offence of stirring up hatred on the basis of transgender identity. And Joanne Lamont had tabled an amendment which uh, made some very simple statements about the ability to say that human beings are sexually dimorphic and so on. Um, uh, and the Equality Network put out a briefing to MSPs saying that this particular amendment represented a fundamental attack on the rights of trans people. It's very hard to know what to do with that uh, for to enable women to be in the world and to name the source of their oppression and to be able to say that human beings are sexually dimorphic, sex is real and it has impacts on their life experiences is not a fundamental attack on the rights of others. But if it is construed as such, then it's it's very difficult to know where we where we take that. Do you think it's frightening to be a woman in twenty first century Scotland? Um, well, it's certainly nervous making to think that you might make very basic statements about the law or want to advocate for your rights and find yourself on the sharp end of state power. Um, and we know that that's already begun to happen, not under the rubric of the, the hate crime public audit order act because that hasn't come into force yet but you know there was a woman who had chalked a slogan outside St Andrew's house um, who got a tap on the door from the police and was told if she persisted with that behaviour she might be regarded as being having committed a breach of peace offence um, so yeah I mean I, I, women are thinking quite carefully about what they say publicly already um, and then this is something that we were at pains to get across to MSPs during the passage of the hate crime bill is that what is regarded as hate is now highly contested. Um, and when you extend the reach of the criminal law, you need to think really carefully about how you do that. And in fact, in the last couple of days, uh, Roddy Dunlop, QC, Dean of the Faculty of Advocates, has said to one of your colleagues yeah. that he's worried that the, the Hate Crime Act may have a chilling effect and that it may be <clears throat> used to makes a malicious reports to police. Because I mean, this was the point we tried to make, was it's the Justice Secretary said, well, you know, in a court of law, the legal threshold is very high. But what we tried to say was that it, it may never reach a court of law, but the, the mischief that could be caused and the pain that could be caused to people when they are the subject of a malicious complaint is can be devastating. Um, I mean, ironically, there was a trans woman, Miranda Yardley, who was accused of transphobia. And endured, I think Miranda described it as sort of 10 months of hell, waiting for the charge to be heard. That's 10 months of someone's life being caught up in the criminal justice system. So there's a real concern that that's a possibility now. I mean, you've gone through and you've, you've talked and, and written very movingly about what you have gone through professionally. Should we talk about that when you were working with the RCN? Yeah, so I mean, my interest in the topic and desire to research it coincided with my, uh, I left my role at the Howard League after five and a half years and took up a part-time position at the Royal College of Nursing as a policy officer. So I did that two and a half days a week. And um, in the rest of my time, I was researching this issue. And 
uh, starting from the starting point of the prisons policy, that's really what had piqued my interest. But I'd also begun to look at the data issue because the, there was a bill going through the Scottish Parliament preparing for the census, which will take place next March. And it was a very short bill, but I saw right away that it conflated the concepts of concepts of sex and gender identity. So two, my two colleagues and I had written a paper for Scottish Affairs, a peer-reviewed journal, and um, it had been accepted with very few changes and was pretty much ready to go to the publisher. Uh, and Lucy, my colleague, presented some of the findings at an event at Edinburgh University, which then be, has since become quite uh, well known because after the event, one of the speakers, Julie Bindle, was attacked. Um, and in fact, someone was charged by Police Scotland afterwards and subject to a direct measure. measure. Um, and after that event, I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'm, I'm a very open person. I thought, well, I'll I'll mention that I've written this paper and that it's going to come out in the summer and just to be aware. And I had told my managers the previous November that I was doing this work um, once we put our submission into the Scottish Parliament on the census bill. So again, I want to be open. I didn't feel I had anything to hide. So I completed a declaration of interest form and I heard nothing. So I assumed that was all fine. And I handed a copy of the paper in to my manager. Um, and then the week Following that, I came into work to be pulled into a room to be told that I was being investigated uh, for breach of my contract and failure to follow the declaration of interest policy. So I was really, really shaken by that. Um, and there was a, 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 I was interviewed as part of the investigation. Um, and in that intervening period, because the publication hadn't gone to print, I was so worried about losing my job that I asked the editor if I could remove my name and he said it wasn't too late so I did I couldn't tell my co-authors or the editor why I was doing it uh, because I was told I was not to disclose what was going on to anyone apart from my partner um, I was interviewed and when I returned from a summer holiday was told it was not being progressed further but then I went into I was told to go into discussion with my manager to decide how I would manage this external work that I did and that's really when things started to unravel for me because these were really frustrating meetings where I kept saying, I, I was thinking myself, so if I want to keep working here, which I did, it was a job I love with some wonderful colleagues doing really important work. I want to know that this isn't going to happen again in two months time, six months time. So how am I going to avoid finding myself in this situation? So I kept saying, can you tell me which views in that paper were particularly problematic from the point of view of the RCN? The RCN didn't have a policy on the census. It didn't have a policy on um, pr prisons, trans prisons policy. Um, and no one could tell me. And uh, that really troubled me. And so these circular conversations went on and on. And in the final meeting, um, I said, well, I, I just don't really know how to progress here. And I was told that by my manager, well, perhaps a way for you to consider a way forward is to reflect on your values and consider whether they're compatible with the values of the RCN as expressed in its equality policy. And that was it. I, I was so upset and angry. I went and reread the policy and I upheld everything in there. I feel really strongly. I think the UK has some really good anti-discrimination legislation. But the thing that I was always clear about was that you need to consider all nine protected characteristics and not prioritise one over and above all the rest. And I went home and I was really very upset and I decided I don't think I can keep working there because I don't think, I, I, I just, 
I can't keep working there if I don't know how not to misstep again and prevent being subjected to that experience all over again. And this is an organisation that represents a workforce that's what, something like 80% women? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was the bitterest of ironies, really. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So for you, you know, with all your experience and with your insight onto policy around sex and gender, I just want, how how did you feel inside having your values questioned? I was really devastated, really devastated. Um, Well, apart from anything else, I felt like it was an attempt to police the inside of my head. I didn't think my values were defective, but that was the suggestion, or it felt like it was the suggestion. And I thought to myself, well, do it, you know, can I work with people who I assume think I'm bigoted? Um, And and my conclusion was like, I can't. Um, And I was in an incredible position where I was able to resign. Um, And my partner said to me, do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to do this work on sex and gender? And I said, well, yes, I do. And so we agreed, okay, well, let's just, just, just go and go and do the work. It's really hard. I mean, I recognize that, Lisa, and I was about to ask you exactly that question. You know, what were the people closest to you saying? Were they, were they actually just saying, do you know what, maybe you should just stop talking about this stuff? <laughs> uh, no, they were supportive. They were supportive. Um, I was very lucky in that respect. And I think at the point that it happened, there was already a burgeoning community of women um, who were working on this issue. So I, I met Maya Forstatter actually a month before all this kicked off, quite coincidentally. I met her at a meeting in London. Um, and obviously to start with, I couldn't talk to anyone about it. And that was quite awful. But once it was over, I did have this very supportive community of people who made me feel as if I wasn't going mad because I did feel like I was going mad. I thought, well, maybe I am a bigot. Maybe I'm really missing something here. So I was lucky. I had two colleagues, Kath and Lucy. Uh, I had my family and I had this uh, community of feminists who were able to say to me, you're, you know, you're fine. <laughs> Nothing you're doing is contentious. You know, if you can carry on, then carry on. It's really fascinating for me because I you know I interviewed Andy Whiteman the former Green MSP at the point that he left his party because he felt that you couldn't have a debate about some of the things that we're discussing and you know to see someone like Andy sitting crying with me in an interview was just um, shocking but I think it's almost the frustration that you can't See, I mean, you you talk about you have to think, am I a bigot? And that, and Andy said the same to me. And I actually said to him, do you think that the other people on the other side of this debate question what they're saying, question their opinions, test their um, so-called evidence? And and he said to me, I, I suspect they don't. But we spend a lot of time worrying that we might have got everything wrong here. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, even beyond the point of resignation, I it really dented my self confidence. I was I was doubting myself, and uh, the idea of speaking about it, even as much as six months ago, really made me feel very queasy, to be honest. Um, and I, I didn't particularly plan to do it at this moment, but I think the judgment in the case of 
of my forced out to her employment appeal tribunal judgment crystallized things for me and I thought actually yes that is really what happened to me that it was on the same basis really that I got caught up in this and and Maya said that to me herself um, um, you know 18 months ago Um, yeah how many other women do you think are suffering a little bit in silence with this but are aware that there may be complaints about them there may be people out there wanting to get them into trouble at work um, a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, basically, once you set, once you put your head above the parapet, and once you have a means by which people can reach you by email or some other means of contacting you, you tend to find that people start contacting you saying, "This is happening to me," but I'm not in a position where I can challenge it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the breadwinner, or um, I just can't afford to lose this job. Uh, and in fact, that's already happened in the last uh, 48 hours since I my blog online a couple of people have approached me um but they you know they don't feel they're in a position to say anything but i i think the thing that has changed is because of the ruling in maya's case it's it has made some people feel that they might be able to challenge internally and so i mean you've seen a group of academics at cardiff for example right to the welsh government now i don't think it's a coincidence that happened a few days after maya's judgment um, you've seen a gender critical academic network be set up by the Open University again I think people are who had been quietly organizing now feel right okay well this is the moment and my institution is really going to be in trouble if they try to quell this or stop it from happening. I mean when you, you're sitting describing all of this and I'm well aware of some of these instances myself we live in a Scotland that keeps talking about how progressive it is. We have a first minister who continually talks about being a lifelong feminist. How much support have you had, even just publicising your own story? I mean, what has the first minister retweeted anything that you've said around this she, as a lifelong feminist? I don't. She doesn't follow me, so I, I'm small beer. At least you've not been blocked. I, I haven't been blocked, no. Um, uh, I have had messages behind the scenes from people I have had a couple of um a couple of former well as a, a, a serving politician um and a couple of former politicians support me behind the scenes and some of them publicly which is nice um but yes I think we spend so much time talking about how progressive we are <laughs> and maybe less time thinking hard about what that means um and uh yeah, it is, it is the kind of unifying theme. If you look back through, and I used to be a government communications officer, so I'm always quite alert to this, look back through press releases, there's a great desire to frame new pieces of legislation in those terms, isn't there? To uh, to position Scotland as a progressive nation um, because it's doing X, Y, or Z. But I think the thing that has also really struck me about this issue and obviously thinking it particularly in light of the hate crime bill was you know what is hate crime is not the mechanism the main mechanism for reducing harms committed against women I think we can all be clear about that it's one tool in the armory but it's certainly not the biggest most important tool the thing that's really going to change the game for women if they want to for example escape violent partners um, is to improve their socioeconomic status and that's a big job and the policy levers for that are pretty substantial. And passing a bill about hate crime is relatively cost-free 
I mean, there are costs, but it's pretty small, small beans. But resolving women's economic status, their low economic status is, is huge. Resolving yeah. access to housing, education, income loss when they step away from the employment market. Those are expensive things to do. And of course, they're, they cross the uh, devolution and reserve boundary. So I, it, you know, it feels like the cheap thing to do, uh, sim- the symbolism thing, but actually maybe not the meaningful thing a lot of the time. And equally, I would have said that the um, the deeper, longer lasting impact to improving trans people's lives would be increasing the health services and reducing the waiting lists absolutely. for gender clinics. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and again, so this is a... A big structural issue. We know we know that you know, waiting times targets are being missed all the time. We know that uh, there are huge waiting lists to get access to the gender identity clinics, but we also know there's huge waiting lists to get near the CAM service, um, and, and that, to be honest, really concerns me. And 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 it's not just children with gender dysphoria who are not getting access to CAMs. It's children with really severe mental ill health. Uh, and there was an audit Scotland report a few years ago which said that the referral numbers had gone up, but also the rejected referrals had gone up. Um, I mean, children can wait a year to be seen by someone. And, and sometimes we're talking about children with really profound mental health issues, you know, suicidal ideation and so on, uh, quite apart from, um, you know, gender dysphoric concerns, who, whose needs are just not being met. And again, as you say, these are expensive problems to resolve. But it would be far better if our energy was channeled into resolving those sorts of issues. If, if we feel real compassion for people who are suffering, uh, whether it's gender dysphoria or any other mental health problem, particularly young people, then that's really what we should be spending our time and energy on, to, to my mind anyway. I mean, I know you um, try and avoid the phrases like Orwellian and Kafkaesque, etc. But, you know, I sat and watched uh, Handmaid's Tale, the new series on Sunday, and I actually got quite upset just thinking it feels, without being too dramatic about it, it does feel a bit like that in Scotland right now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they are overused phrases, aren't they? And I, I was speaking to another journalist yesterday about about my blog and uh, I said to myself, I'm not going to use those two words, but one of them just leaked out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's just very difficult to think that you can't talk about these matters of great concern to women without being ensnared in whether it's the criminal justice system, but actually, you know, that's at the upper end of the scale. But to be, if you watch the activity on social media, which obviously isn't real life, but nonetheless, you know, if, if you're a woman in politics or the media, then you are on social media because it, it allows you to do your job. And it's almost a prerequisite. I mean, you'd be hard pressed these days to be a female journalist and not be able to not be expected, you know, you, you're expected to try and uh, sell your wares online. But the nastiness um, and, and the threats that come flying at you, I mean, you just have to search, you know, Joanna Cherry or Diane Abbott's names to see what flies at them. And it's absolutely vicious. I mean, quite how we think more women are going to go into elected office or public life when they see that that's, that's what you get. Um, and that really concerns me because I think the thing that became clearest for me again during the passage of the hate crime bill was in the stage three debate, the most impassioned speeches uh, calling for greater recognition of the impact of the legislation on women came from female MSPs. And that's not a coincidence because it turns out you need to have skin in the game 
I think, to really understand this and to really want to advocate for it. And uh, the optics, I mean, I was watching it online like most people because you couldn't be in the chamber, but the optics really were quite grim. There you had kind of a handful of female MSPs pleading to improve this legislation so that it wouldn't have an adverse impact on women. And several male MSPs saying, oh, don't worry, it'll all be fine. The courts will sort it out. I mean, the optics were really terrible, um, but it was very stark. And so, I mean, it's really wonderful that at the, elect, the last election, we, ha- you know, we do have more female MSPs. We're not at parity, but it is better than it was. But I mean, really, who would want to be a woman in politics at the moment? As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.